Welcome to Evangelistic Center Church. Today, um, you know, sometimes when you're a pastor, you you kind of struggle with, you know, things that you need to preach or you need to say, and, and maybe some of y'all have had the opportunity to teach or to lead a Sunday school class, and sometimes there are some truths that are just harder to preach than others. Does that make sense? And as I was preparing for this sermon this week, and I was reading through the scripture, and I did a lot of reading, and uh, I do a lot of study and commentaries and websites, and I just scour places and study. And the more I studied, the more difficult it felt like this message was going to be. And, and every minister, and I'm not immune, I, I want to I tell you uh, for sure, but every minister, uh, we like to preach things. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead. Can I confess to you all for a second? I love preaching stuff where you guys say amen. I mean, who doesn't like to do that? I mean, you, yeah, thank you very much. Whoever did that, I appreciate that. And sometimes, though, you have to go and preach something that on the surface may not feel like something that's really edifying. And today may be one of those messages. Um, I like to preach things that edify you and strengthen you, and I certainly like to encourage you and instruct you. I want to have a robust relationship with the Lord and be drawn closer to Him every day, and I know that's your desire too or you wouldn't be here. Um, and so this message for me is a little bit different than probably things that you've heard me preach in the last four or five months, maybe in the last year. Um, and on the surface, it may not really feel like one of those messages that's really edifying, but I hope my goal today is this, that you would listen intently and that you would allow the Word even in times when the word is hard and when the word is difficult and when the lessons come through through some agony and some personal uh, pain, I, I want you to listen to this message that even though this may feel a little hard, that, that it is still from the word of God and God's word is always meant to purify his saints and to draw us closer to him, that we would be more and more like him every day. Don't you believe that's true? So, uh, I, I want to talk to you today about, uh, and matter of fact, I'm not sure if I've ever really been in a church that I heard somebody preach this particular message, but I want to preach to you about a doctrine that I, I think has been kind of neglected in, in Christianity. And today, I want to talk to you about God's wrath. You see what I said? I, I, I was testing that out with somebody over here. I, I think it was Steve. Steve gets a bonus five. Yeah, I want to talk to you about God's wrath. God's wrath, I think, is grossly misunderstood. And recently I was reading an article, and I, I mean, I watch preachers on YouTube and websites, and I was reading an article uh, on a website, desiringgod.org, and that's uh, John Piper's ministry. And in that, in that article, he made some interesting points about our unwillingness to acknowledge that wrath can be a part of God's character. And we don't like to acknowledge that wrath is part of God's character. Now, when I was a young man, and, and uh, that was a while ago, but when I was a young man, and maybe some of you can relate to what I'm getting ready to say, but when I was a young man, you could preface a defense of the gospel by saying something like, well, the Bible says. And then you could say what the Bible says. Or maybe you would say, you know, somebody wonders, well, why do you act that way? And why do you say that? And what's the truth about that? And you could say, well, God says. And for the most part, if you said the Bible says or, the God, or that God says, it carried enough weight for people to acknowledge that what you say is true. Or even if they, even if they didn't just immediately say, oh, yeah, you're right. But by saying the Bible says, that carried a little bit of weight, right? 
And I'm talking in the 80s, maybe even in the 90s. You could talk to folks and you could say, well, the Bible says, God says, and that carried enough weight for people to acknowledge that there was some basis in truth because if the Bible says it, then we trust that the Bible is true, so then it must be true. Are you with me so far? But we don't live in that environment any longer. That environment has been gone. Uh, merely appealing to the truth of Scripture isn't a sufficient defense for many who doubt God. You aren't going to find very many people who would call themselves agnostics or atheists. And agnostic is just a fancy word for somebody that says, I don't know. Do you believe in a God? Yeah, I don't know. You aren't going to find very many people that do not have a Christian worldview that when you speak to them, it will be sufficient for you merely to say, well, the Bible says. Now, just so that I make sure you don't understand me, for us and for myself, it is wholly sufficient to say the Bible says, right? I mean, how many of you believe that the Bible is 100% true whether you like it or you don't, right? And even if, you, even if your preacher... That may be today, I don't know. Even if your preacher says something that maybe you hadn't heard or on the service you disagree with, but if it comes out of the Word and the Word was rightly divided before you, that the Bible says or God says carries weight with you. Is that true? Because it certainly does for me. It carries weight. When I open that book to Genesis through Revelation and I read something in there and it talks to me about what Christ's substitutionary sacrifice has done in my life, then that means something to me because the Bible says so. But appealing to that truth isn't sufficient for those who doubt God. And there's nowhere more prevalent than in the, in the discussion of the idea that God has wrath. What people will always say, and, and uh, I, I don't want to dwell on this, don't go try to find it, you won't find it on Facebook, but a couple of weeks ago, um, I decided to wade out into the water of a Facebook debate. And I have sworn those off. I gave those up for Lent years ago, and I just kept giving them up. And I could ask you all today, how many of you ever been swayed by a Facebook argument to change your mind? And the answer would be exactly zero times, because it never happens. But I waded off into one, and, and I don't want to dwell here, but the, the conversation had to do with um, the morality of abortion. And I'm not going to preach about that today. You know where I stand on that. But I waded off into that, and what really returned to me in that was that God is love and God doesn't judge and He loves everybody and we're supposed to be forgiving. And that is true, right? You all know God is love. Matter of fact, I think the Bible says that in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. And if you grew up in the 90s church, when I say 1 John 4, 7 and 8, you should be singing that song right now in your head. I started to do it, but you wouldn't. I don't want to take away from what the worship team did. Hey, I'm, yeah, I'm really good. In an effort to deny God's existence, the world has um, resorted to impugning God's character because they don't believe. And so they attack God's character in the way that God operates. And they say things like this, well, how can a good God send people to hell? Why would a good God send people to hell? Or maybe this question would sound like this, why is God so angry in the Old Testament? Or why would God command the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites? Any of y'all heard those arguments? And, and I think that all of these objections have their roots in one common idea. 
And, and here's the idea. It's the idea that God cannot both be good and be a God that has wrath. For non-believers, and I would say maybe even for some believers, uh, we can't grasp or we can't resign ourselves to the truth that God is love and that God has wrath, and we think that they, they don't go together. And so typically we have a false view of one or the other. Either we, either we uh, resort to condemnation and we think that God's love really isn't what we've made it out to be, or we go completely the other way and think, well, God loves everyone all the time for any reason, and therefore we are, we are exempt from any wrath that God could ever have. And neither are true. So today what I want to clarify in your ears is what God's wrath is and maybe give you some good news to go along with it. So if you will turn with me in the Bible to Romans chapter 5, we're going to begin there. I don't know why I'm talking so loud. That, that just come out. <laughs> I apologize. I'll try to tone it back down. <laughs> no, I won't. I, I lied in church. Romans chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 6, and we're going to read down through verse 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Let's pray real quickly today. Father, we come before you to ask today that you would impart your truth into our hearts and into our spirits. Father, today would you teach us the truth about your love and about wrath and about how you interact with your church and with your people. And Father, would you give me words to speak that I would not say anything contrary to your word. And Father, for all that here today, would you use this scripture, would you use this to make us more like you and to make us um, understand you in greater ways that today we'll be closer to you and more like you when we leave this church. And Father, we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is what is wrath? Well, if we were to get a clipboard, and I was, I was kind of, when I wrote this, I was kind of thinking about those if you've ever seen those uh, late night talk shows that they'll get a clipboard and a pen and they'll go around uh, town and they'll ask, they'll ask people like history questions and they laugh because they can't get them right. You know what I'm talking about? Some of my favorite ones is when they've done that at college graduations, like as right before the college graduation. And then they'll, they'll say stuff like, oh, where was the Boston Tea Party? And they'll say, well, it was in Canada. Have y'all seen those? Am I the only one that's seen that? I was sort of thinking of that when I was writing this. But if we were to grab a clipboard and we're going to walk through the mall, so we're going to be conducting this survey, and we ask people, we ask people that we meet, what is wrath? We would probably mostly get answers kind of like this. Well, wrath is extreme anger. That sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, if you think of wrath, that'd be that wrath seems like more than anger, so maybe that's extreme anger. Or maybe we would say wrath is vengeance, or wrath is punishment. Uh, this seems this answer feels a little bit more oaky. Wrath is just getting really mad. 
And I think that's true, and I think those are all good answers. So it kind of makes sense that when people hear that God has wrath, that they struggle to understand that. Because it's hard to reconcile that God could get really, really mad, or that God could get angry, or that God would ever have vengeance, because after all, doesn't the Bible say that God is love? Well, it does say that God is love in 1 John 4, 7, and 8. So to those who, who know God, those who don't know God, they use this perceived contradiction to undermine the idea of the Bible's inspiration and the Bible's truth. They also use this to demean God in an attempt to prove that He either isn't good or that He doesn't exist at all. So how do we reconcile God's love with wrath? And if you've not heard this, uh, you just haven't been paying attention. If you haven't noticed that it has become uh, the battle cry uh, in the media and in movies and television, even in popular culture and popular, popular music, that, uh, that by saying that there is an eternal God and by trying to acknowledge that there is a good that is higher than us, by trying to convince people that the only true morality will come when your heart has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, if you haven't noticed that people are trying to silence that, it's because folks no longer just simply believe in God. And, and one of the biggest ways that this has happened, and I would encourage you to kind of pay attention, I think I have my, my ears really sensitive to this in culture, but begin to pay attention of how many times you will see people, and I was going to cite you some people on TV you would know, but I'm not going to do that, but you will see popular talk show hosts or athletes or musicians who... Uh, always say, well, the reason uh, that we affirm this attitude or these lifestyles or this, this thought process is, well, we just believe that God loves people. Well, we just believe that God loves people. Well, how many of you know that God does love people? But how many of you are aware of what the Word says that happens to people that don't love God? So uh, let me ask you before we get into it, do you think that this God that we, we read about that is love in 1 John 4, 7, and 8, is it possible then that also as a part of His character that God has wrath? So if, if the disconnect between the unsaved and God is that they cannot understand that God would ever have wrath, then I think before we can go any further, we've got to know what God's wrath is. Well, what is wrath? So... I want to give you, and I hope I don't put you to sleep with this, I want to give you just a short theology lesson. I know you don't come to church for those, but I want to do it anyway because I think it will give you a little bit of basis of understanding of what I'm talking about today. Um, but I think it will help you understand the attributes that we assign to God. So uh, when we talk about God, we typically give Him human characteristics. And when we give God human characteristics, that's what scholars call anthropomorphism. Not one amen on that, I, I noticed. Anthropomorphism. And that fancy $5 word, it just means this. It means to attribute human characteristics or behavior to God. There's another word that's, that's its sister, and it's anthropopathic, and it's very similar. And it means to ascribe human feelings to something that's not human. And it's important to understand this, and here's why. Because the Bible regularly uses anthropomorphism to describe God. Now let me give you an example, because you're probably thinking, I don't know what that guy's talking about, but let me give you an example. Anthropomorphism is assigning human characteristics to God. Are you with me so far? 
So let me give you a few, just a couple of examples. In Psalm 89.10, the Bible says that God scatters his enemies with his powerful arm. That's anthropomorphism. How about Exodus 31.18? The Bible says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Do you see the picture? We're talking about God's arm and God's finger. The imagery of God having arms and fingers is anthropomorphic because God does not have arms and fingers. John 4.24 says that God is a spirit and that who worships Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So if the Bible says that God is spirit, but we talk about God's hands and His arms and His fingers, well, that's just a way for you and I to understand an infinite God. It helps you and I to wrap our minds around God's creative power and how God interacts with us, and so we use anthropomorphisms all the time. Are you with me so far? You can even, uh, anthropopathic, you can even say it like this. How many of you know that in the Bible it says that God's a jealous God? Well, God is, God's jealousy is not the jealousy that you and I think about. We think about jealous like, I'm jealous that you have something that I don't have, right? I guess that could also be covetousness too. Uh, that could be a whole lot of things, but that's typically what jealousy is. God's jealousy is that he wants you and all of you and all of your heart and all of your worship because you are most satisfied in God and God is most satisfied in you when your relationship has been restored. So when God says he's a jealous God, it's simply that he doesn't want you chasing after things that are bad for you. He wants you to seek him because he's what's best for you. Does that make sense? So this imagery, it helps us to understand God. So sometimes we talk about God being jealous. The book of Judges says that God was moved with pity. And in numerous instances in Scripture, the Bible says that God has wrath. And wrath is an anthropomorphism. It's when we are taking a human emotion and ascribing it to God. So when you read the Bible and we talk about God's wrath, the writer is attributing the human emotion of wrath to God so that you and I can understand what God's doing. And so that we can understand that God's wrath and your wrath, they're not co-equal. They're not the same thing. Now, let's go back just a little bit because I told you a moment ago of what wrath was. Well, that was getting really, really mad. That was getting angry. That was... Uh, super upset, it was vengeance, that was wrath. But now I want to talk to you how God's wrath differs. Christianity today defines God's wrath as this, and I love this, maybe the best definition I've ever heard of God's wrath. God's wrath is the intense recoil of divine holiness from sin and to the equally intense judgment of God upon sin. And I want that to hang in the air just for a moment. And if you can cast your eyes to the screen, God's wrath is the intense recoil of divine holiness from sin. How many of you know that sin cannot stand in God's presence? Sin cannot stand in God's presence. Before Christ, you and I could not directly go into the temple and worship God because we were sinful people. Are you all with me so far? God's wrath is that he recoils from sin. And God's wrath is always the intense judgment of God upon sin. How many of you know that God has judged sin? God's wrath is not the sinful behavior that you and I spoke about before. 
God's wrath is not human passion or, or selfish vindictiveness. The expositor says this, that God's wrath is no empty name, but the most terrible of all powers, a consuming fire in which everything opposed to His holiness is burnt up. God's wrath is not human wrath. And the difference, the biggest difference in the way I think you will most be able to think about this is God's wrath is always just and it is always right. God's wrath is always holy. In other words, um, unlike our impulsive, self-serving outbursts of anger, God's wrath is always just. God is never going to exercise His wrath unjustly because He's perfect. He has justice in His wrath. But in His wrath, God is also to be feared if you do not know Christ. The Lexham Survey of Theology says this, that there are over 580 references to God's wrath in the Old Testament. That's a lot, isn't it? And probably you even heard people say, well, why was God in the Old Testament so mean? Have you ever heard that? Well, He seems mean. But God's wrath doesn't just show up in the Old Testament. 580 times in the Old Testament, encompassing 20 different Hebrew words. But in the New Testament, God's wrath shows back up. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist chastises the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he warns them of the coming wrath. In John 3, the Bible says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains in him. Did you catch that? John 3, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The appropriate way to speak about God's wrath isn't this. It is not this. If God's good, then why does he execute wrath? That's not the way that you and I should talk about it. And I hope maybe I'm giving you a little bit of something to think of. We aren't arguing that if God's good, then why does He execute wrath? The appropriate way to speak about wrath is this. God is so good, why doesn't He exercise His wrath more often in light of man's wickedness? That one hurt a little. That one was a little harder to take. God is so good, why doesn't He exercise His wrath more often in light of man's wickedness? I mean, do you see the difference? See, your wrath and my wrath is not always just. It isn't. You and I have been angry, and we have, uh, even if we didn't physically exercise vengeance, we did it with our tongues and with our thoughts, right? We have all, at one point or another, been unjustly angry. But God has never been unjustly angry. God doesn't fly off the handle or react without thinking. God is always just. And the more appropriate response in dealing with God's wrath is to say, we are surprised that in light of how God feels about sin and in light of how far separated man has become from the ideal that God set up, it is surprising to me that a holy God has not enacted His wrath much more often on men. That's really the argument. But God's wrath is just. God doesn't just fly off the handle or react without thinking. Listen to Psalm 103. I'm going to read you uh, verses 8, 9, and 10 of Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. 
slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. Don't you love that verse? I mean, that's one of those verses that, that you can cut out and you can stick a magnet on the back of it if you're crafty and put it on your fridge, right? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And praise the Lord, I am grateful because it is because of His grace that I'm able to experience His compassionate love and His slow to anger and His faithfulness to me because of His grace. But that passage does not stop there. Listen at verse 9. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. Now, so do you see what happens? See, really what Scripture is saying is you, we all should be thankful that this God, that by the very breath that comes from Him, galaxies were flung into space. Galaxies uh, became uh, in existence. And, I, and I'm not an astronomer. I don't really, I'm, that's not all that interesting to me. But I, the way that I understand it is the galaxy even today is still expanding. Scientists have looked as far away as they could look and they can't see the end of it because when God spoke life, I believe that those words were so powerful that they are continuing to produce life today. And so what, what I can say in my own life is my sin had to be crucified because a holy God will not tolerate sin in His presence, nor can He. So there was a time that when uh, all of us on this earth or in the next, all of us will bow our knee to Jesus. We will. You can, I want to give you, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into eternity. Bow your knee now, not then. And so what we'll recognize is God's wrath is executed upon sin, but His grace is so powerful that His wrath is removed from those who are His children because God's wrath, the time in history when God's wrath was most poured out, when God's wrath was most evident, when God was the most wrathful in, uh, that He has ever acted since, uh, since thousands and millions of years ago, the place and time when God's wrath was never more evident was on a tree outside of the city on a hill called Golgotha. And there was a cross and they put His very Son on that cross and they stood the cross up and they dropped it into a ground. And men who denied that Christ was who He said He is, men began to hammer spikes into His wrists and they drove Him through His feet. And even as that was happening, God's wrath was being poured out upon His very own Son so that you and I would not have to experience in eternity His wrath. And in that, we have grace. See, if anybody ever would say, well, you know, you, you talk about grace too much. And that's probably true. Maybe I need to preach some more wrath messages, I don't know. But, but I like to say this, you don't ever appreciate grace until you appreciate how bad you need it. You won't. Because when you think through the process of that crucifixion and you understand that that was God's wrath, I want you to know, church, that, God, that wrath was intended for you and Christ paid the price that we didn't have to take it. And the day's coming. The, don't let anybody tell you different. The day is coming. And if you want to know what that's going to look like, Read through Revelation. Matter of fact, the Bible tells you that blessed is the person that reads this book. Go home and read through it. You say, well, pastor, I can't understand it. Just go read it. You'll understand it. 
You don't get it all right, but you'll begin to see how God's wrath will be poured out on Satan and on all wickedness at the very end of earthly time. See, he has not dealt with us according to our iniquity. So, in summary, human wrath sounds like this. Extreme anger, vengeance, getting really, really mad. But God's wrath is righteous and just, and it is God's intense recoil of divine holiness from sin and God's intense judgment upon sin. Now look with me again back in our text. Let's go again back to Romans 5. I want to read verse 9 to you one more time. I got a little ahead of myself, but this will work. Romans 5, 9. How much more then, since we've been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Now, there's a little phrase in verse 9. If you've got a pen or if you're taking notes, underline, we will be saved through him from wrath. John MacArthur writes about God's wrath and that it's revealed in two ways. One, indirectly through natural consequences of violating his universal moral law. We certainly see God's wrath poured out when his, his moral law has been violated. And number two, God's wrath is meted out directly through his personal intervention. And you can see that in the Old Testament uh, from the sentence that was passed down on Adam and Eve to the worldwide flood uh, to the fire and brimstone that leveled Sodom. And even when you look into the Babylonian captivity of the nation of Israel, you see God's wrath poured out on unholy people. But the most graphic revelation was Christ on the cross. God has, God has in his wrath, he also has various kinds of wrath. First, God has eternal wrath. And this eternal wrath will be meted out in hell on those who reject his offer of salvation. People that are not saved, that don't know Christ, that have no relationship with him, they will ultimately experience eternal wrath and separation from God. And that's not politically correct. That won't win you any Facebook arguments, but it's in the Bible and it is true and God says. He has eternal wrath. The Bible also tells me that God has an eschatological wrath, which just means the wrath at the end times. And that will be the final day of the Lord when God's wrath will be poured out on the unbelieving world. You can find that in Revelation. God also has a cataclysmic wrath. And you can see that in the Genesis account of the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you also have a consequential wrath, which is simply the principle of sowing and reaping. When you reap wrath, you sow. When you sow wrath, you reap wrath. God's wrath is holy. And it is his response of his holiness to the wickedness and rebellion that is so prevalent in our world today. Now go backwards a few chapters in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read you verse 18 out of Romans 1. Romans 1, 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see that? His wrath comes upon those who are unrighteous and they suppress the truth. So what does this wrath talk, what does this really mean for you and I? What, what does this mean for the New Testament believer? And I want you to, when you go home today, when you leave church, I want you to go home with this. I want you to, to button this up and mull this over and meditate on this today. And think about it tomorrow. And if you're, if you're prone to forget, read Romans 5. And then go back and read Romans 1. But I want you to go home with this. One day, God's wrath will be applied to all of those who have chosen to reject God's holiness and Christ's sacrifice. One day, 
God will pour out wrath on those who have rejected his holiness and Christ's sacrifice and instead have chosen to live their lives in indulgence of their own sinful desires. God's wrath will be poured out on those who choose to live indulgence, living in indulgence of their own sinful desires. So the wrath of God that you read about in Scripture, it is real, it is true, it is biblical, and it is something to be feared if you haven't trusted in Christ to save you from sin. You see, why do, we, why do we so often talk about how important it is to preach the gospel? Why was it the last words before Christ ascended into heaven did he tell the apostles, the disciples, to go and preach the gospel? Because it is through the preaching of the gospel that men are saved, and that is the only way that they will escape wrath. So I'm not telling you that you go home and you find that unsaved sister or brother or child or parent and just walk up to them and say, Pastor said you're going to hell. While that's true, if they don't know Christ, I'm not saying that's the best way to do it, but the conversation at some point needs to be based around here is the truth of Scripture and God is a holy and righteous God. And the Bible tells us over and over that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And at some point, these people that you know and that you love, at some place, you're going to have to find time to begin to lovingly speak to them about the condition of their souls because if you don't and if they don't trust in Christ, God's wrath awaits. And people, no one likes to talk about this. If, if this sermon, and I don't preach near well enough for this to get famous, but if somehow my message today showed up on the Today Show, I would be castigated, thrown away, beat down, canceled. Uh, I'd, I'd have to run and hide somewhere because the world doesn't want to hear that you ever do anything wrong. Nobody wants to hear that probably the most serious of all sin is sexual sin, and you see it in everything from, uh, from uh, the, the dissolving of the, of the nuclear family, uh, the dissolving of a dad and a mom, and, and you see it in, in acts of abortion and in sex trafficking. We see how that is destructive, and our society has been built around this idea that sex is everything. Matter of fact, I would challenge you today, whatever you watch, Make a note, put a pad by your, by your chair. I do this sometimes. And just see how many ads in a row they use sex to sell you something like Oreo cookies. I don't know that it's Oreo cookies, but something we were watching. I was watching an OSU football game last night. I did have a little wrath of watching it. And I don't even remember what they were selling to something. I, I honestly, I don't even remember what it was. And I'm thinking, really? We need, you know, I, Arby's or something. I really need you to sell me sex so that I'll buy a Big Mac. I don't understand. I digress. What we need to know is what this means for the New Testament believer. We need to know. The unbelievers need to know. But there are ways in which we communicate God's love and His grace and His mercy, and it has to begin with us. See, one day, God's wrath will be applied to those who have chosen to re reject God's holiness and to reject Christ's sacrifice. One day that's coming. The Romans 5.9 says that we've been saved through Him from wrath. The world says it's unloving of God to have wrath. That's what the world would say to you. It's unloving of God to have wrath so it cannot be real. But your answer is, well, if you don't believe in God, how can you judge God to be unloving? The world refuses to believe in God because they believe that forcing you to trust Him makes Him a shallow, weak narcissist. 
Again, how could you judge God when you don't believe that He exists? How can you borrow from a Christian worldview to judge God when you don't believe that He's there? And what they don't understand is that God's wrath will be ultimately meted out on the lost. And not because God's not loving, but because He loves so much. He loves so much that He gives the lost what they want. And what they want is to be separated from God. So when people say, how could a loving God send someone to hell? The response is, God loves so much He will not take you somewhere you don't want to go. If you didn't want Him here, why would you want Him forever? But the Christian will be spared the tumult of God's wrath because our sins have been forgiven and God's wrath is reserved for those who love darkness rather than light. So why is God angry with sin? Why? Well, it's because sinful, wicked people have pushed the truth away from themselves. They have suppressed the truth that God naturally reveals to anyone in order to believe anything that supports their own self-centered lifestyles. God does not tolerate sin because God's nature is morally perfect and morally right. And God cannot ignore, ignore or condone such willful rebellion because God is holy and He is not ever going to tolerate sin in His presence. But God's ultimate desire, God's plan throughout history was that He would remove the sin and restore the sinner. I've said it like this before. I don't, uh, I don't think that the plan of redemption was an accident. If you hang around me much, you'll probably hear me say things like, man, probably when I pray for you, you'll probably hear me say things like, I don't think that this caught God uh, off guard. It, it occurred to me that nothing ever occurs to God, right? He, he's not like us. Man, I can't believe that. I don't believe that, that in the very beginning when man was created that God did not know that at some point that we were going to walk away. And that even in the beginning that this creation that he loved so much but yet he had been separated from because of the sin that we allowed in our lives, I don't think that it was ever an accident. I don't think God was walking through heaven and he was saying, uh, stand up, turn around. Nah, too short. Uh, stand up, nah, too tall. Uh, no, I saw you get mad the other day. Uh, how about you? Could you go die for him? Oh, no, you're busy. Oh, bingo on Thursday. Okay, we can't send you. No, I believe in the very beginning when God created you, he knew that we were going to miss the mark, that we were going to fall away. And from the very beginning, Jesus was always the plan. He was always the plan. Because God, even though he is a God that executes wrath, more than anything, he wants to remove the sin and restore the sinner. He wants to remove the sin and restore the sinner. But the sinner must not distort or reject the truth. God reserves and shows His anger from heaven against those who persist in sinning. So, aren't you joyful today that you and I have a promise from God that in eternity we will not be subject to the wrath of God? That was a good spot to amen. Aren't you joyful today that we have a promise from God that in eternity, when we have accepted Christ as our Savior, in eternity we will not be subject to the wrath of God? That's good news. Listen to Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. I love this passage. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and how joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
Rejoice in this. Praise God for this. If the, this morning the blood of Christ has been applied to your heart and replacing your heart of stone with a heart of flesh and it has brought you from death to life, out of darkness into light, then you can rejoice in this, that you will be spared the relentless, powerful wrath of God that will ultimately bring righteous judgment upon sin. So if today you know Christ, and when, we, and when you kneel down to pray or sit in your chair in the morning, or if you pray driving into work, if you are just ever having trouble, like, I don't know what to say, I've got a bad day coming up, things just aren't going well, God, I don't know what to do, then do this. God, thank you that you have spared me from a removal in your presence, that you have spared me the inevitable wrath on those that do not know you, but because you have loved me, that you chose to send Christ for me, and you have caused me to be redeemed, and you've caused me to be clean, and you have set me free. And so God, today, no matter what is going on around me, I rejoice in this, that my relationship with you is restored, that I will live in eternity in your presence, in righteousness and in holiness, and that your wrath has been averted from me because you loved me so much that you sent your son to carry out your wrath on him instead of me. That's good news. So I'll wrap this up with this. You've been saved from God's wrath, not merely from not merely from this human emotion of anger. You've not been saved from this human emotion of punishment. But church, if you know Christ today, you have been saved from God's intense and righteous judgment upon sin. And if you haven't, that's what awaits. Earlier I read you a, a verse about God's wrath. In Romans 1.18, I'm going to read that again. It says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But I want to contrast that with the two preceding verses. So go back up to verse 16. For I, this is Paul speaking, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. See, there's, in these three verses, there's a very distinct dichotomy between Romans 1, 16 and 17 and Romans 1, 18. The righteousness of God appears in verse 17, and His righteousness is observed in the salvation of everyone who believes. Aren't you glad that you have God's righteousness if you believe? God's righteousness has been imparted to the believer. And what a difference we see in verse 18. See, this is the contrast. Verse 17, we observe salvation to all those who believe. In verse 18, God's wrath is revealed against those who do not. Righteousness for the believer and wrath for the unrighteous. I was, if the worship team would come up, I was listening to uh, a podcast. I'd, I'd like to give credit for some of the things that I say. I always just try to tell you if I, when I can remember who it was, but I can't give credit because I don't remember who said this, but I was listening to a podcast. It's been months ago, months ago, three or four or five months ago. I don't remember. But we were talking about, they were talking about Romans 5a, and I don't even remember what the whole message was. I just remember this one thing. But that was kind of our pilot verse today, that God proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word proves. Have you ever, let me back up, have you ever... Okay, I'm just going to talk to yet to men. This is just for men, ladies. Yours comes next. 
It's just for men. All right, guys. Uh, how many of you remember going to buy your wife's wedding ring? All right, let me try this again. How many of y'all did not buy a wedding ring and you're still in the doghouse for it? Uh, Jack, he raised his hand. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you too, Mark. Uh, in trouble. Uh, we'll get that taken care of. You remember, okay, well, let me ask ladies. Ladies, how many of y'all went with him and told him what to buy? Oh, uh, y'all, everyone of y'all in this church lying to me right here in church. I was young. I was 21 years old, and I went to Zales, and I was in college, the Zales in the mall, and they, I picked out this ring, and I, I'm actually kind of proud of myself. She still wears it. But I went in there, and, I, and, and back then, the, the pri I was going to tell you how much it cost, but I better not do that. that that'd get me in trouble for sure. But back then, uh, you know, you'd look at a price of that, and I'm going there thinking I can get something pretty nice for like $149. Ha! <laughs> huh! I couldn't buy the box for 149 But I go in there, and I'm looking for rings, and they... And, and here's what I noticed. This is where I was going with this. Here's what I noticed. They would take those rings out, and those turkeys, they have that black velvet cloth. And they lay it on black velvet. Now, how many, Harvey's nodding his head. Fellas, that's how they suck you in, right? You know. Can I get an amen? You know what I'm talking about. They put it on that black velvet, and then here's another thing they do. They got the brightest white light. I mean, it literally is the sun in light bulb form shines on the, on the ring. And so you're in there and you think, oh my goodness, Rusty puts that on. She's just going to walk around on her hip. And she wouldn't even, I mean, everybody's going to, oh, and, and what I'm thinking is they're going to say, man, that Noah, boy, what a job he did. And I also learned that uh, even though I was in college, I was dead broke. Matter of fact, I was worse than broke. Uh, they will loan you money. I did that too. So I've been there. Young men, if you're thinking about doing that, come see me. But they lay it on that black, and they shine those lights on it, and it glistens, right? And it, it looks something irresistible, and you see all the clarity. I also learned in, in wedding ring shopping that there were different clarities of diamonds. I'd see one, i think, guy says, doesn't that look good? Yeah, it looks good. Well, then he'd hold up next to another one. Then that first one looked yellow, another one looked white. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And they do that because you thought you were going to get that 149 one. And then when they show you the, diff the other one and it's like $9.99, then they got you. They put this on this black velvet and this ring with all these lights and it stands out and it jumps off to your eyes and it glistens. In Romans 5a, when it says that God proves his love for us, that word proves in the Greek means to put on display. So here's what God did. He put Christ on display for you so that you could see him in his holiness, that you could see his grace and his love and his undying affection for you. There were no gimmicks, but the father was displaying on a cross his son for you. See, those jewelers, they do that, try to get you to buy something. But what God was doing is he was, he was wooing the sinner. He was drawing us to him through Christ.
And the beauty of that is that that gift has been made available to all who would believe. So I, I, I care about you all. Most of you in here I've gotten to know pretty well. I care about you all. And I want you to escape God's wrath. I don't want anyone in this room to experience God's righteous wrath. But rather, I want you to experience His grace and His redemption and His restoration and His love and His mercy. And how you do it is we simply give away control of our lives and give it to God and we trust in Christ's sacrifice. We begin today walking after His will and after His plan.